Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to the Think Humanities podcast. Women's History Month this month in March is an annual declared month that highlights the contribution of women to events in history and contemporary society. It's celebrated during March in the United States and other places around the world, corresponding with International Women's Day on March the 8th. The commemoration began in 1978 as Women's History Day in California and was championed by a woman by the name of Gerda Lerner, uh, the National Women's History Alliance, to be recognized as a national week in 1980 and then a month in 1987 in the United States, spreading internationally uh, after that. And our guest today on our podcast is the the distinguished professor of English at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Dr. Catherine West, uh, who is going to share her thoughts on uh, Women's History Month, uh, her talk in our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau on the journey to women's suffrage, and maybe some other things we'll find uh, some time to talk about. Dr. West, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We have uh, months dedicated to just about everything, if not days. We uh, have just celebrated uh, Black History Month, and many people think we should be celebrating that every day, and hopefully some of us do. Uh, We probably have National Ice Cream Month or Donut Day or something like that every every day and month, uh, but of course, some are more serious than others. Why should it be important that people pause and recognize women during National Women's Month in March? Well, I'm certainly among the crowd that thinks that these celebrations should be happening every day, but um, the reality is that they are not. And um, it, it, we are, I believe we're at a moment in our history when it's just still very important to stop and remind each other of these histories and, and celebrate, commemorate, memorialize, um, even some mourning in some cases. Um, I, too easy, I guess, in the day-to-day for those things to just not get talked about unless we have now, of course, what I'd love to see is a day when um, Native American history and culture and African American history and culture and women's history and culture and, and all of these things are simply so well known. Um, but I don't think we're there yet. Well, that's a, um, I, I think you're right. And uh, I would just, uh, and, and not to put Bellerman on the spot um, or, or uh, any public knowledge or or not uh, having that knowledge of these uh, important days. But uh, among the, the uh, you told me that you're on sabbatical, so you're not in the classroom today, but you have been on many 
uh, history month days. Among your students, let's say, for example, uh, among the young women in your classes over the years, do you think they are cognizant of of Women's History Month and, and what it should mean to them? Yes. And, and especially when I think comparatively, um, and I don't think it's true across the board, but I think for so many of them, there is a great deal more awareness than there was when I started teaching, say, 20 years ago. So there's a move in, the, in a good direction. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that um, maybe in the last 20 years, what has happened in our history, uh, which has uh, drawn attention to this in a way that they're more aware of, uh, of some of the important things in, in life, whether it's black history, women's history, um, there's so many other very important, uh, deep uh, historical commemorations for so many things. Why, why do you think that is? Are, are people studying it more? Uh, are uh, good uh, professors uh, in the classroom bringing it to the attention uh, of people? Are there more national celebrations? It's an interesting question, and I think a tough one, but I would point to national celebrations Um, And more so than what's going on in in universities, I think our um, grade schools and middle schools and high schools are doing more than they used to, to to raise awareness, to talk about these histories, to to bring it to to people's attention. And I would also uh, add to that, if I may, that because of the the prominence of women uh, and their uh, ascension to many positions that they've never held before. I I don't know if it um, surprises you or I still have to sort of pause when I hear that uh, President Biden has nominated the first African-American woman as a Supreme Court justice. And part of me wants to think and uh, and say, well, that should have happened a long time ago. Um, uh, and certainly uh, it didn't, and, and it's happening now. I would think that the attention uh, through many different positions in government or uh, how long has it been since uh, uh, the Speaker of the House was the first female Speaker of the House in history, that sort of thing. I mean, that, that's not ancient history by any uh, stretch. So don't you think that also contributes to it, that oh. the, the accomplishments that we celebrate of women? Absolutely. Yes, I think. And I think this is true for um, Black Americans as well, right? Simply seeing more people in more positions. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, Dr. West, uh, uh, going back to your Speakers Bureau uh, presentation for Kentucky Humanities, the journey to women's suffrage. Um Trace for us, if you will, and give us uh, uh, your knowledge about how important and significant the women's right to vote is today. It was at one time many years ago and and still the the origins of this. Tell us about uh, how it contributes to today's ability to go into a voting booth just like anybody else and cast a ballot, uh, which was not always the case. 
Um, and, you know, there were people um, who, who were uh, advocates for women's rights, even back during the suffrage movement, who argued that, well, really, this isn't what we need, right? The vote is not. Just as with um, the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment today, that, you know, there are attempts to revive that. And there are some people who say, no, we just need to get, you know, wages aligned and we need to work on these things and these things rather than these legal entities. But um, I, I think the, the, the constitutional amendment, you don't hear constitutional amendment lightly, right? That carries a great deal of import. And um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's very important that that be there. And, you know, there are a few countries in the world where it still doesn't exist. Um, Saudi Arabia, women got the right to vote there in 2015. Hmm. Right. And, and, and we know some of the problems in countries. So, um, so yeah, I do think it's very, very important. What, uh, tell us a little bit about the, the history of the, the women's suffrage movement in this country and how Kentucky played in that story. Sure. Um, what I thought I'd do is talk first a little bit about just what it is, right? Um, and then uh, some of the things, you know, we went through or we had the, the 100th anniversary in 2020 and lots of celebrations, lots of discussions, lots of programs put on, except then, of course, COVID. And so um, not as much as we would have liked. But I, I, I think, I hope the, um, the basic narrative is more familiar now than it was before that 100th anniversary to many people. So what I wanted to do was talk about kind of what and then um, some of the surprising things that are a little less known. And then, and then I have an argument for how it happened. Um, just you know, what were those key factors? So it was achieved um, August 18th, 1920, the 19th Amendment. Um, Kentucky had actually ratified it January the 6th of 1920. So we were not among the last. We were, in fact, earlier than many. Um, and it simply says the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Right. And so there you have it. It seems that with, um, you know, the, the stroke of a pen, the, the accomplishment of a vote, 50% um, of the population is suddenly enfranchised. Of course, we know that wasn't quite the case, right? Um, black women um, were, you know, many people will argue that um, that didn't really come about until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, because there were so many impediments put in the way of black Americans to vote. Native Americans did not even become citizens until 1924. So, so it's still a, you know, a, exclusive, I suppose, in some ways, um, but nevertheless, hugely important. Um, I, some of the things that um, I think 
um, well, if, if I could, just that language of the 19th Amendment shall not be abridged on account of sex. You know, it, it's the real push beginning is seen as 1848 with the Seneca Falls Convention called by um, Lucretia Mott and uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton in Seneca Falls, New York. And they, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was an amazing writer, she wrote a declaration of sentiments, right? And it's, uh, she riffed off of the Declaration of Independence and she says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. Hmm. And just, I, it's, it's, sometimes I, I want to stop and think about the power of that phrase, all men and women hmm. are created equal compared to the 19th Amendment. Um, I, Right. There's something so just the addition of those two little words mm-hmm. changes the whole landscape. Well, I think you're correct about that. Um, and and that was just think for a moment about the times. And uh, of course, she was speaking to an audience that appreciated hearing her say that. But just what about the the rest of the United States and the world uh, for a woman to make that statement? It was scandalous, among other things, to say the least. So out of that convention, uh, what happened? Well, um, they there were more conventions, basically. Um, and, it, you know, that's 1848. This isn't achieved until 1920. So the people at Seneca Falls were not alive to see it happen that mm. 70-some years later. Mm. Um um, and it involved years, clearly, of, of working, of protesting, of creating organizations. There would be rifts among some of those organizations. There would be more organizations created. And um, I've got a little bit of, of earlier history I want to talk about. But then that's exactly what I want to go to is um, all these intersecting things that come together to make it happen. Um, but but if I could, if you uh, j- just sort of thinking about when women could vote um, from j- for one example, in New Jersey, from 1790 to 1807, women could vote in m- municipal elections. Right. New Jersey ended that in 1807. And then that was it. It was just for the rest of the 1800s and into the right early 20th century, it, it was just a barren landscape. Well, well Dr. West, let me ask you, um, uh, and uh, what uh, was there a significant development or um, the uh, what what happened in 1807 that uh, occurred that completely changed uh this right that they had been given. Right. Uh, you know what? I have, I've done some digging. I haven't come up with much beyond. It seems to have been a whittling away over the years, hmm. you know, especially as um, more and more that uh, 19th century ideology of separate spheres develops the idea that men belong in the public sphere and women in the private sphere. Hmm. 
as that takes hold so very strongly. I, 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 and I, if, if there was some event, I've missed it. I don't think there was. It mm-hmm. was just this kind of gradual, the way people were thinking and, and, and how that developed. Um, but then if we could go back even further, um, indigenous women on this continent mostly had the vote all along. Now, of course, Hmm. yeah, isn't that fascinating? It Mm -hmm. wasn't a, it wasn't, you know, go to a ballot box the way we think of it today. But, um, and of course, there were so many different peoples, indigenous peoples uh, across the North American continent, and they differed. But largely, uh, women had a voice in the decisions that were being made among the people of what to do. And one thing that that helps highlight that, um, you know, a large part of our government uh, original sort of structure was based on the Iroquois Confederacy, which was six different tribes in the Northeast. And um, various founding fathers met with them, Benjamin Franklin being one of them. And they had this meeting to talk about how they did this with you know, their six different peoples and coming together, but maintaining. And when they arrived for the meeting, the Iroquois asked where their women were, mm. why mm. they were not there to talk about this. So, so, so while we think about this kind of unilateral women couldn't vote, it, it was more complicated than that. It depends on who you look at and where you look. Dr. West, do you think that... Um that history uh, has not done a, an adequate job in informing uh, lay um, students or historians in in recognizing that indigenous uh, peoples uh, had women involved in their governance um, uh, many, many years ago before um, American women were given the right to vote. Is that something that uh, was a discovery for you? Um, is that something you were aware of before you happened upon it? Um, I was aware, but I, I think that we've done an abysmal job of, actually, I think we do an abysmal job of, uh, in terms of awareness of Native American history, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, most students in my classes know uh a, a not exactly accurate version of the Thanksgiving story, and they've heard about the Trail of Tears, and that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Wow! Um, but returning to that because it is uh, fascinating. The the um, now when we're speaking Indigenous, uh, are we talking primarily Native American? Yes. And. In a um, and and I'm going to show, uh, which is not uh, hard to do, my ignorance about this subject too. Are we talking about uh, tribal decisions that were made equally among women and men? Yes, and again, I don't want to say that it was that way across the whole country all the time, but we know of just so so very many examples of. Um, Peoples that, yes, uh, tribal council decisions, uh, you know, decisions about whether to, to move to just all those kinds of things. Um, women were involved. 
And of course, a great many uh, indigenous tribes were in fact matrilineal. Certainly not all of them, but many were. So I think that of course plays a role as well. When Native Americans met with uh, white uh, army forces um, in an effort to um, uh, try to reach agreement on a treaty or uh, of course we all know and I certainly don't know the history like I should but that created the great uh, migration and and the move uh, to the west uh, pushing them out of the trail of tears all of that were women involved in those conversations also making the treaties no because I believe the native peoples had figured out by that point that they weren't welcome and wouldn't be listened to. Hmm. Well, that's that's uh, interesting in itself, just to to know that they were uh, at some point in the discussions uh, at the table uh, and were casting a, a vote of some sort. Um, so that well, what else can you tell us about the early um, uh, not just the indigenous, but but how women what was it? After the 1848 uh, convention, was it the activism that was displayed by uh, numbers of women? Were they in the minority across uh, the, the majority across the United States in in pushing for this uh, 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 reestablishment of women uh, as equal? Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Um, they were the minority to start with. and. Um, I guess to, a way to illustrate kind of what starts coming together. Um, again, there are all these intersections. Um, and, okay, women were not supposed to speak in public in the early 1800s, right? And really through the mid part of the century, it's still considered scandalous, especially in mixed company. Right. A woman certainly didn't get up and address a crowd or an assembly. Um, we know what happened way earlier times, but to Anne Hutchinson when she tried to do that. And that that kind of continues, um, although the women actually had a voice in some Puritan um, decisions. But um, so they, they were not allowed to speak in public. And here's where I think that separate spheres ideology I mentioned of. You know, men take care of the public sphere, women take care of the private sphere. It, it almost turns on itself because women are being told. And now, of course, I, I should say this is women of a certain class and typically white women. Right. But they are being told that they are so important because they're in charge of the home and they're in charge of the moral sphere. And it's their job to make sure that their men and their children go out into the world with a certain moral stance and way of, of being. Well, if you stop and think about that, wow, that sounds really important, doesn't it? And, and, and then they see all these problems around them and they think, well, should we be talking about that? If, if we're the ones in charge of that. And so um, the first woman 
we know of, and she actually addressed a number of uh, legislative assemblies, was Mariah Stewart. And she was an African-American woman, and she spoke about abolition. And so that breakthrough of um, women beginning to be able to speak in public is key. Um, Did she speak in public? Yes. And what Uh, do we know about her background? um, She was African-American. She... um, very, very brave. Um, Lucy Stone, we can talk about in a moment. She was another one, a white woman who began speaking in public. And so, okay, so more intersections. One of them is Quakerism. If it weren't for Quakers, I'm not sure we'd have women's suffrage, frankly. I, I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, Lucy Stone, Lucretia Mott, Amy Post, Susan B. Anthony, the list just goes on and on and on. And of course, the Quaker belief the Society of Friends, was that everybody has an inner voice. And if you feel moved to share that, it's your obligation to do so. And so, oh, well, even though I'm female, right, I believe abolition is wrong. And so I need to speak up about this. And so speak up, they did more and more and more. And, um, the spiritualist movement of all things, which starts in 18, also in 1848, got more women um, appearing before audiences and speaking in public. I know it's an odd one, right? But, but the spiritualist movement with mediums, because more women were mediums. And so they began taking a voice. So that taking a voice. And then, of course, the biggest is abolition working toward abolition. And again, that idea of uh, promoting the moral sphere. Um, there's a, an interesting quote by actually Frederick Douglass, who of course was himself a suffragist. Um, and, and also attended, uh, did he not, the 1848 convention? He, he was did. there in person? Yeah. He was, absolutely. And even though When you get into the 1870s, um, there's a kind of schism over the 15th Amendment and Anthony and Stanton and a few others in the attempt to court southern states took some really bad positions racially. But he was actually with Anthony and Stanton the day before he died. So Mm -hmm. this relationship remained. Mm -hmm. But he said, when the true history of the anti-slavery cause shall be written, women will occupy occupy a large space in its pages for the cause of the slave has been peculiarly women's cause. Mm. So that, that, you know, fervor to end slavery becomes so strong. Women refuse to, to stay quiet. And um, it, and so they begin speaking more and more uh, working for abolition, um, writing, speaking, you know, holding meetings. Um, In fact, it was in 1840, the World Anti-Slavery Convention was held in London. And Lucretia Mott, who was a little older, one of the early, she was a delegate to it. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was there because actually she was on her honeymoon with her husband, who was a delegate. 
And there were a few other American women and uh, the World Anti-Slavery Convention refused to seat them. It's just not proper to have women here. And and so they they kind of had to hide behind a curtain Mm. (laughs) over Mm. here. And uh, interestingly, Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, they stood up for them. They said, "Okay, then we're going to be over here, too. But but that's where they met. And they went on walks in London. And that's how by 1848 we have Seneca Falls, that Mm. meeting between those those two women. And and they organize it. That's fascinating. Um, I'm talking with Dr. Catherine West, professor of English uh, at Bellarmine University, um, who is also talking to us about uh, women's suffrage uh, as we look at Women's History Month and uh, celebrate uh, the month of March uh, as we maybe should celebrate each day uh, uh, the women uh, of our country, of our world and their accomplishments. Uh, We're going to pause here and come back with uh, more conversation right after we hear from our good friends at Spalding University. Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing offers outstanding instruction in a supportive literary community. Study across genres. Explore the interrelatedness of the arts. Travel to Paris next summer for short-term study abroad or stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies on campus. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Dr. West, uh, is there a... um, a final um, factoid that you'd like to share with us that you find fascinating before I ask you about some of the uh, uh, people on uh, the podcast who are listening can't see your background, but I'm fascinated by <laughs> your collection of books in your office at Bellarmine, but I'm, uh, I'll save that for the, our, our uh, uh, in just a few minutes. Is there, is there something else that you'd like to share with us uh, about uh, your talk? for the Kentucky Humanities Speakers uh, Bureau on Women's Suffrage? Sure. Um, Well, for one thing, I was talking about abolition, just the list of different movements and causes, abolition, temperance, um, dress reform, prison reform, vegetarianism, the bicycle Hmm. craze, the free love movement, they all came together to help support suffrage, to bring more people into the movement. And so it, I just find those um, those intersections fascinating. The way Tell us happen. about the, uh, the bicycle craze. Okay. Um, it's in the 1890s. And um, actually, of course, it intersects greatly with dress reform, right? Because those big voluminous skirts and the corsets and all of those things, you couldn't ride a bicycle, <laughs> right? Um, but the they just bicycles became fabulously popular. Women were riding them as much as men, and it um, it just it, it's another one of those things that it seems quirky, but opened up a great many opportunities for movement. You you know to go somewhere for more education for for jobs to have a a, a job of some sort. And and if you ever there are just fabulous pictures and postcards around of people from that era on their 
their bicycles. Tell us, uh, as we close out uh, our discussion on on the women's movement, uh, the uh, the prominent Kentucky women uh, and the role that they played. Well, um, there was, of course, Laura Clay is one of the best known. Um, and, and she was, you know, part of the, the Clay family a few generations down. Um, I, I will tell you, I'm not quite as conversant with the Kentucky women as some mm-hmm. of the others. There's a, a Mary Breckenridge. Mm-hmm. And there's another name, and I can't believe I'm blanking on it, that I've always thought she was so wonderful. Um, maybe it'll come to me in a moment. I apologize. Well, that's that's fine. Um, there were, uh, and in our, our Kentucky history, I think we've done a pretty good job of uh, highlighting those women. Uh, um, and we, we can we can find some reference to that. Uh, now, to books and your uh, professorship at uh, Bellarmine, uh, your teaching uh, as an English professor, uh, just kind of bring us up to date. You, you are, um, you're teaching your students, uh, I believe you told me 20th and 21st century contemporary, um, and American modernism. So kind of that modernist group with Faulkner and Hemingway and Porter and Stein and all of those, and then, uh, contemporary writing both late 20th and early 21st century. Do the, I, I'm sure that uh, those uh, writers are and their primarily novels are assigned by you to your to your 20 year old students, uh, your 18 to 22 or so uh, year old students. What is their um, what are their thoughts uh, about that? Uh, that writing, uh, which we uh, that have grown up with them and continue to read the the classics, mm-hmm. uh, again, why is it important that young people um, see the 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 worth, the relevance, uh, the uh, the writing style of those masters? Um, they're just so good. You know, there was a study just a few years back that tried to kind of scientifically show that reading and discussing literature increases empathy. And, and you know, there seems to be a very strong correlation there. And that just seems to me so very important to understand, um, understand other people and other ways of life and and all of that. Of course, when I think of the modernists, uh, you know, the Hemingways and the Faulkners and the Fitzgeralds and the Porters, um, language, that play with language, I don't don't know that I'm very good at expressing this, but I just think it does so much for us to, to study that and be aware of it. And then what we can do in our own expressions, whether they're creative expressions or everyday conversation. Um, and I think that it they teach us uh, a complexity of meaning, a complexity of meaning. Things are not typically cut and dried. Are people reading as much um, as they were 25 years ago? In my classes, they are, if they're doing what they're supposed to. <laughs> I kind of suspect so. Um, actually, they say that book buying is really on the rise again. And, um, you know, I think there have always been people who don't read. But, 
but I, I think we have a pretty good reading population right now. I'm optimistic. Uh, are you optimistic about uh, the students that you interact with at, at Bellarmine and the, the, the future that they um, are uh, lo- looking to and, and training for? Oh, absolutely. So very much so. Um, and, you know, part of what I think I see in them is that understanding of the complexity of meaning and um, the, the need to really just dig in and and figure things out at, um, uh, you know, Fitzgerald said that he believed genius was the ability to hold two different ideas in the mind at the same time. And I think we've got a lot of genius going on these days. And I think good. that's a very good thing. And of course, just their, their passion and their energy and their understanding for important social causes is just so inspiring. Dr. Catherine West is the professor of English at Bellarmine University and a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. Uh, We appreciate you being with us today and uh, wish you the best. And someday I'm going to uh, make the trip over to visit with you and and peruse uh, your your wonderful book collection and uh, maybe even uh, borrow a couple of those. How about that? It's a deal for sure. Thank you very much. Thank you so very much. I appreciate it the opportunity to talk about these things. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.